One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. The Labour Party. Remember them? As Jeremy Corbyn's successor is announced later this week, we ask, what does Sir Keir Starmer, I mean, whoever ends up winning, have to do to get cut through in these most extraordinary, not just political times, but economically, socially and, and health, the public health uh, questions facing the country and the world? What on earth can an opposition leader do or say to get cut through on that? Uh, later, we'll speak to Gabriel Pogrant from the Sunday Times about the extraordinary purge of Corbynistas being planned by Sir Keir Starmer. Plus, Janice Turner and Daniel Finkelstein, two Times columnists, disagree on just about everything in terms of the real politics of Sir Keir Starmer, what sort of leader he would be, what he needs to do, and what impact coronavirus is going to have on our politics in general. First, I just want to say a couple of things. First of all, a massive thank you to everyone who's got in touch over the last week or so. We're so glad that you're still enjoying the podcast and the fact that we are continuing it. I apologise if occasionally a line drops out or things go a bit wobbly. It sounds like we need to pull the string a bit tighter on the yoghurt pots. I'm glad that you're still enjoying it. Lots of you have posted some lovely messages on iTunes. Uh, Claire WP said, listen to Redbox should be compulsory. Claire, um, I'm inclined to agree. TH Ware said, we'd gotten through Brexit and two general elections now taking you through coronavirus with a mix of detail and light-hearted humour. Uh, we're doing our best. Uh, try to find humour wherever we can. And Kubanska Kaya said uh, that uh, we pulled together a five-star podcast, uh, apparently. It's even better than the World Service. Um, we're doing all that with a fraction of the budget. We also had a lovely email from Barbara Lawson, who listens on Spotify, so couldn't leave a review, but just wanted to get in touch to say how much she enjoyed the podcast, including the apparent spontaneity. Well, I can assure you, Barbara, there are no rehearsals for this, um, as will become clear as the podcast unfolds. But do keep in getting in touch. Email us redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet us at timesredbox, or you can find me on Twitter 
at Matt Chorley. We should also just very quickly say something about the World Cup of Political Films after our chat with Kevin Mayer, uh, the Times Chief Film Critic, on Friday. We did the World Cup on Twitter. Thousands of votes were cast. All the President's Men, the favourite, after our chat with Kevin, got knocked out in the semi-finals, creating an Armando Iannucci head-to-head in the final. Uh, the death of Stalin and In the Loop going head-to-head. In the Loop emerging as the Victor causing outrage on Twitter, despite the fact um, it was only Twitter who had voted. But anyway, there we are. If you are a fan of Armando Iannucci, and why wouldn't you be, scroll back through your podcast feed, because I spoke to him earlier this year about it, precisely that, In the Loop and the Thick of It and Alan Partridge and all the other incredible work that he's done. Uh, that's well worth a listen if you're trying to kill some time, as I suspect you might be. Right, down to this week's episode then. The new leader of the Labour Party is named this week. What on earth they're going to do to try and cut through the coronavirus noise? Later, I speak to Gabriel Pogrand from the Sunday Times. But first, Janice Turner and Daniel Finkelstein join me on the line. Janice, let's start with you. I mean, are you excited about the prospect well, of a new Labour kind leader? of. I mean, as a distraction from, you know, sort of cutting my own hair and growing vegetables or whatever we're supposed to do. It is, a, you know, it's something else to think about in the scheme <laughs> of things that's not um, virus related. Um, and it will be very interesting to see what happens. I mean, to the sort of Labour Party more generally, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by Keir Starmer. I have been a long time because I think there's nobody who has played a long game more um, carefully than he has, not alienating the left too much. I mean, he's really kept his mouth shut and not set off any bat signals to sort of stop, you know, people on the left voting for him, you know, the membership being still predominantly left. I would imagine that a lot of the a lot of the sort of momentum people regard him as that kind of Manchurian candidate, you know, that they that he's been a sort of Blairite Manchurian candidate who eventually is going to burst through with, you know, bringing Rachel Reeves and and some of the people like Hillary Ben. I mean, that would be lovely. It would be lovely to see these solid, clever people back in the shadow cabinet. I mean, that more than anything, competent, clever, like get rid of Richard Bergen, get rid of Dawn Butler. No, think of the, think of the, we need right now, when we're all holed up at home, we need more oh, Well, Richard I don't Bergen know about that. Lives. I'm sure there'll be, but yeah, I think it's going to be <laughs> less joy of the nation. It's going to be bland, loyally, interrogation. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm delighted by that. I don't, I, the Corbyn era was just the most monstrous, divisive, factional time. It's basically the factionalism that I would be glad to see. And the one thing that I am hoping for is that all the Chris Williamson type people, all the really nasty people who only joined and got involved in the Labour Party because Corbyn was there. To them, he's like a sort of, he's like fly, he's like a a bin in August and they're flies. They will always come. Labour Party. <laughs> they will be attracted to the Labour Party. But if that bin is taken away, they will leave and go somewhere else. That is my hope. A bin in August is about the best uh, the best metaphor I've heard. Danny, just talk to me. What's it like when you're there with someone who becomes leader of the opposition and nobody's <laughs> remotely interested. I mean, obviously, back in 1997, it was because Labour had won this massive landslide. The Tories were never going to win an election ever again. What was the point of uh, even list bothering? Well, I will answer your question, but, uh, but I would say before I do that, I don't think the, the position is quite analogous. So uh, I did see this these polls with this immense gap between the Tories and Labour, and it was a bit like that when 
William took over the leadership. And people were trying to characterise him in some way, and he never really had a chance right from the beginning. Uh, and um, that was partly about him, uh, because uh, people sort of, insofar as they remembered him, they remembered him making that speech when he was 16. They thought it was a little bit odd, but it was mainly about the Conservative Party. People just didn't want to hear from the Conservative Party after 18 years uh, of Conservatives in power. Um, so sometimes, you know, I remember uh, particularly working really, really hard uh, for William on a speech on the environment, um, making sure the Conservative Party was positioned because William cared a lot about those issues, not on on, on both soft green, that, that meaning um, the, the, the issues of the uh, environment and hard green, that meaning um, not just climate change, but also things like refuge collection and stuff like that, um, and parks, um, and was a great speech. We were really happy with it, and it got literally not a single line of coverage. Uh, and that can be very Aww. dispiriting. Um, and, and, and actually, William quickly worked out that the Prime Minister's questions was one of the few times where he could really make an impact. Uh, but ultimately, and I think this is the most important thing to pass on to a new leader, ultimately, although it made an impact in terms of the morale of the party, and that is very important, it didn't with the electorate. Uh, and the reason for that is what they're looking for is an alternative government as well as a critique of the current government. And we were very good at providing critique, or certainly providing it in a, in a lively and, and funny and a catchy way, but we weren't very good at providing an alternative government. But I said at the beginning, I thought it was a different uh, situation. First of all, I think we've really missed having a leader of the opposition. Uh, yes. I think, you know, we've just had a period in which the government is engaged in all these new schemes, hundreds of millions of pounds. Uh, we've got, you know, uh, the, the police arresting malefactors for purchasing Easter eggs. Um, so uh, that's obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but not far. Um, during this time, we do not have someone either to critique the government or to critique the government and at the same time bring behind the national effort the part of the country that is very sceptical about the prime minister, which uh, which is you know, a substantial part. So uh, I think we've really missed that. And I'm excited, but for a different reason, that we'll now have a, a credible and intelligent uh, leader of the opposition worthy of intellectual and political respect. I think that's very important for the country. I'm really glad Labour's leadership contest is finally, finally over. The one thing, however, Janice, that I would say <laughs> uh, is you won't get rid of the factionalism. That's one of the few things that Keir Starmer will not be able to get rid of. Jeremy Corbyn's bin will turn out to be the recycling one, and uh, that um, that the, that uh, you will still get a battle between the left and the soft left, and that Keir Starmer's uh, long game will turn out to be his only game. My worry about Keir Starmer, well, there are two worries from my own personal political point of view, and this, of course, will differ with lots of people who are not who are listening to this, who are not kind of uh, uh, um, centrist Tories. Uh, I, I think he's going to prove quite left-wing that that wasn't an act. And uh, secondly, I think his inability to stand up strongly against the antics of the far left will turn out not to have been a tactic, but a personality trait. Mm, I don't know. I, I really, you know, there's rumours around that he's getting rid of Carrie Murphy and Jenny Formby and Seamus Mun is already going to go. I, as I say, is you know, this Manchurian candidate side of him that you just don't know whether he's, when he's going to burst out and be his real self. I think he's a lot more formidable and strong. And I've seen him speak. I've met him. I think that he 
I think he is a lot steelier than people realise, but he's he's just not showing his colours yet. I mean, he cannot when the majority of the membership um, is is still has uh, even if it's now rejected Corbyn isn't rejected Corbynism. He has to he has to keep his counsel at this point. I mean, it is going to be fascinating to see what happens after that. So one of the, my arguments all the way through Corbyn's leadership is that Corbyn was not simply a somewhat more left-wing version of Neil Kinnock or Ed Miliband, a sort of harder left version. He really was something completely different. Right? His politics were based in a completely different sort of anti-imperialist Leninism as a route, which I don't, don't use as a, a, I use the description, not as a, a sort of slagging off attempt, a completely different strand of thought, and so was John McDonald's, that separated him completely from a left tradition in which Keir Starmer is. But he's still in a left tradition. I was just looking at his positions in the 1980s, which I only looked at not, you know, you may think, why are you going back to that? It's because they were the first thing that he mentioned in his broadcast, uh, in his very good by the way, um, a video for his leadership. And it was all things like the whopping dispute, which naturally, uh, as you would, um, I came in to the Times really on the other side of that. And uh, the uh, and the miners' strike and, and his, the suing of McDonald's and those kind of positions, those are perfectly reputable human rights left causes, but they are left causes. So I don't think Keir Starmer is by any means a Blairite, which lots of people in the Labour Party would welcome. I think he's something else. He's certainly not Jeremy Corbyn. And I, I have a lot of, I think you're right. You can't be the director of public prosecutions and get that far without without having an intellectual rigorous side to you. He definitely is those things. And I know people who've known him for a long time. I've met him obviously myself also. And I share your view of him as a personality. I find him quite engaging. You know, I think he can be a bit of a dull speaker sometimes and a bit wooden in his performances. But I don't think that's his natural self, so I think there's, there's more to come out there. But I do think, of course, he's getting rid of Carrie Murphy and probably Jenny Formby, because those people are, you know, any new leader would do that, even a less heated factional war. That's just what a kind of new leader does do, put in their people, and you wouldn't have the same head of office as your predecessor. Um, but I I do think Jeremy Corbyn's politics, while different from Keir Starmer's, they're, they're both still people of the left, even though of a very different kind of left. But then the left, well, when I say getting rid of factionism, what I mean is that kind of Leninism, where you don't highlight an issue in order to solve the issue. You use the issue to, to form a most strong and extreme position by which you split off other people and then you build your movement. This is pure Leninism. This is what this is what the momentum has done in its worst iterations and what Donald's done and Corbyn is is totally part of that. So that kind of factionalism is what I hope will go, is where we look at an issue and we actually try to solve yeah, it, it down thing. We don't use it to sort of, to politic. And that's the sort of thing that really appalls me and appalls the country. And Keir Starmer is absolutely, as you say, not of that tradition. That is really, really important, I think. And also we are... Um, we are at a point where one thing that Corbyn did do even before Corona was to move the Overton window. So we are now a more we were looking at issues of homelessness and gig economy and and all that sort of thing in in the more mainstream. I think that had shifted a, a, a bit um, through Corbyn, but now it's really shifted. And now we really are, you know, with uh, with the chancellor putting through that huge amount of measures. So the left has split. So. Keir Starmer is finding the world has moved left. Well, the country has moved left. The government has moved left. And yeah. now I'm sure you but would... It's a very... Find, where he finds his foothold within the fact 
that his politics are now manifested yes. in a right-wing Tory party. But the worst thing he could possibly do, which is what the even McDonnell has pulled back from doing, is to start shouting about how Boris is a scumbag and a and a and, and a greedy yeah. greedy Tory because these are not true. Or to is what people really want now. And I cannot bear at the moment. I cannot bear as someone on the left jokes about Boris getting coronavirus. Jokes about. You know, I just can't bear any of this. I just want to move forward. Party doesn't matter anymore. The columns being written about whether the Tory party, nobody cares. Nobody cares whether the Labour party. People only care about the country now. Janice, you're talking. Uh, you're talking yourself right? out of this very podcast. <laughs> I, I just. I, I would say first of all, um, there's sort of almost a reliable cycle. You can see it in public opinion polls as you cycle through uh, support for state intervention. Uh, mm. I, I actually don't think that was really Jeremy Corbyn, uh, but I do think it's a real phenomenon. Uh, and you can see that the Conservative Party has moved. One of the things that I was saying I thought that this incident proved is, well, it certainly proves that a neoliberal, uh, that not incident, but this emergency proves, is it certainly proves that the neoliberal night watchman state view is untenable, but it also yes. proves that nobody really held to it. <laughs> uh, so um, the... Uh, that it wasn't, in, in fact, a, a, actually a bit of an aunt Sally. Um, oh, I don't know whether it was. There's no question that you know, um, doing austerity. That's what. Well, no. Um, I, I, well, we have a different view of austerity. My, my view of my view of austerity, to be quite honest, was that it was was just maths. I mean, I, you know, I, as you know, um, I'm politically quite close to lots of people who are involved in that. Not just today, Cameron, to George Osborne, and lots of other uh, people involved in it. And and I know. You know, for a fact that it, it wasn't an ideological view that we didn't need a, a strong state. It was just about we had a massive deficit problem. But when, and Matthew Paris made this point very well in his column on the weekend, Keir Starmer is taking over at a moment, you know, where the state has moved mountains to deal with this moment. This will produce two things which are very acutely difficult. It can move mountains if it wishes to, to solve social problems. And the second is we've spent all the money on the moving of the mountains already, uh, on the moving of this particular mountain and won't have any money left to move further ones. And the Conservative Party will get itself stuck. So my view has always been getting into this big state will be one thing, getting out of it will be quite a different thing. And at that point, Keir Starmer will have an opportunity. So to go back to your first point, Matt, where you asked me, was this similar to William Hague? I don't think it is quite uh, the same, because I think, first of all, the Conservative Party had been in power for a lot longer, whereas in 1997, you know, the Conservatives had been in power for so long, people really didn't want to hear from a Tory party. And 165 uh, MPs, you know, which I suppose is a little bit analogous, but at 165 MPs, people really didn't want to hear from it. I think the position is a bit different. Um, and and I also think that um, because of the simp of the scale of uh, what the state has had to do and what the state will have to then withdraw from uh, as it and and the, and the choices it makes as it does so, you know, we've been able to house all the homeless in hotels. Uh, uh, not we haven't all, unfortunately, but it, there's been a big effort to try to house homeless people just to get them off the streets for now. Are we really going to go back into a situation where we say we can't do that afterwards? But on the other hand, how can we afford to do it? So these problems will then present to a leader of the opposition because they present to all of us, uh, to all the listeners, very difficult dilemmas. They will present to the leader of the opposition, as any government dilemma does, real opportunity. 
And I suppose that the crucial difference to 97 is that the Tories had just fallen yes. out of power and the new Labour landslide heralded what, you know, potentially, as it, and as it turned out, years and years and years of Labour government. Whereas this time round, you know, Boris Johnson could be the tail it end of a period could. of Tory government mm. I mean, it is it, the it's, start it's of It's one. very odd. Um, so this has never happened. Something happened at the last general election, which has never happened before, which is that the Conservative Party, as a party in power, increased its share of the vote for the fourth time in a row in an election. That has never happened in history. Um, and, and in political science, it's a, it's a you know, observable feature of predicting elections that you, you have what's called a pendulum effect. So with every mm-hmm. year you spend in power, you lose a percentage of your vote. That did not happen last time. But then again, we've also got this, a major national emergency, which I think will also change. And a lot will depend on how people think the government has done at the end of this. There's something called the peak end rule. People think of, um, think when they remember things, they think of what happens at the peak and they think of what happens at the end. Well, we haven't probably even had the peak, uh, but we certainly haven't had the end. Just finally then, what's Keir Starmer's chances, do you think, of becoming Prime Minister? But maybe give him marks well, out of 10, Janice. Yes, I mean, there are four and a half years now, at least, to the election. So there is time for many things to happen. There, who would have predicted the, the virus? Um, there are times for Boris to pull flat on his face. And I think that, that Danny makes a really valid point that as we pull out of p- supplying these services, what happens uh, after that is, is really, really significant. People's expectations have really grown about what can be achieved. And if the state has moved to the left, it really is going to be difficult for Keir Starmer to find a, a foothold in all of this. So I would put it at about six at the moment, uh, no, maybe let's say five. <laughs> well, that, that, I, I, I first of all think it's much too early to make this judgment, um, and there's too much fluctuation. So I don't repose much faith in this judgment. I'd probably put it. I, you know, you obviously got to. If he's prime minister, then Boris Johnson isn't. So uh, you know, if you give him fifty percent, you're giving Boris Johnson fifty percent of winning the next general election. Trying to make that judgment is very difficult at the moment. I think he's probably slightly less than fifty percent. It's more like 40, 45%. But, you know, look, we're talking chunky chances, whereas William Hague, I think it was, you know, 5 or 10% at that point. Maybe maybe, maybe I would put it at this point of 40%. He's still got to overcome really a very large deficit. He'd have to have a relationship with the Scottish nationalists. That would be very, you know, some of this mathematical difficulties of Labour forming a proper government are still there uh, for them. But I definitely think it's a tenable thing. So, you know, it's it's forty percent. Maybe even that's a bit pessimistic for him. Keir Starmer, in the north at least, had the had the baggage of Brexit and being a really really hardline Remainer. And I think that this virus has made people forget all of that. So um, I think that is out of the equation. But I think that Keir Starmer does pass one test, even at this point, which is I I think I can close my eyes and can I imagine him walking into Downing Street and waving outside? And I can imagine that. I could never imagine it with Jeremy Corbyn. So. And I could never imagine it with Ed Miliband, actually, if I was on this. But you could also close your eyes and imagine making a speech as well. That's the problem sometimes with him. (laughs) So uh, we've yet to see whether he's... um, But he's a uh, lot more engaging (laughs) in in a smaller room. I mean, I I saw him speak two years ago at a small Labour Party fringe meeting. And he was asked questions about football, asked questions about his family. And he twinkled. And he also spoke at my CLP um, Christmas dinner a couple of years ago and he he has a warmth and a humour that never ever comes over on TV and I just wonder if somebody could try to extract that essence out I agree of with that he definitely has a lot there. He, he definitely I can 
I, I agree, you know, cheap joke aside, I actually agree with your point, Janice. I do think um, that he does, to me at least, pass that first but critical test um, about uh, credibility as a potential future prime minister. Um, that's a very, very important barrier uh, to hurdle over, and I do think he clears it. So uh, that's that's the reason why it's, it's very much a contest. But there's a lot, uh, you know, on the... The, the Labour, a Labour leader has a lot to, to, to overcome, but an awful lot of whether he becomes prime minister will be down to this prime minister. And we are still very early on. You know, I've been having a, a dispute with a very good friend of mine about uh, our early approach and whether it was science driven, you know, um, and and what the I, I've been more generous than my friend to, to the way the government's approached this uh, this problem. Um, but. As it unfolds, there will be people who will land criticisms on the government, and it's quite possible that um, that it won't be, uh, you know, that it, that it won't emerge out of this looking good. On the other hand, it's possible that it will, and that's so important to the next general election, and we just don't know yet. And I suppose a man whose USP is essentially dull competence. That is what people want at the moment. You know, we are not currently living through a time where we want our leader hanging off a zip wire or, you know, waving a fish around and all that sort of stuff. So it might be that, you know, come at the moment, come at the man. We'll have to wait and see. Janice Turner and Daniel Finkelstein there. Coming up after the break, Gabriel Pogrind takes us inside Team Starmer and what he's got planned. Okay, so I'm joined now by Gabriel Pogrims, a politics reporter for the Sunday Times. As we look ahead then to the new Labour leader, and we assume that it's going to be uh, Sir Keir Starmer, Gabriel, what sort of leader do we think he's going to be? And what's he going to do first, do we think? The primary thing that Keir Starmer wants to do as he shapes his shadow cabinet is select people who haven't on either side been involved in the factional wars of Labour over the last five years. He's trying to wipe the slate clean. He doesn't want any of, he doesn't want high profile moderates. He absolutely doesn't want Corbyn's inner circle anywhere near his project. I think his view is that the factionalism of Labour has toxified the party and basically brought it to the brink of destruction over the Corbyn years. So he's trying to appoint what he regards as an all new fresh faced 
shadow cabinet, a lot of MPs from the 2010 intake, names like Rachel Reeves, Jonathan Reynolds, Annalise Dodds. He wants people who your ordinary person has not heard of. That seems to be a, a, a vital requirement for him. I mean, saying that, it's also interesting that his backroom team, so Keir Starmer's Lotto, his leader of the opposition, um, his his office is going is going to be populated by veterans of the party's moderate wing. So this weekend, I was leaked a provisional, a draft plan of Starmer's personal team and Morgan McSweeney, who was an organizer for the Arch Blairite MP Liz Kendall during her 2015 leadership run, is likely to be his chief of staff or play a leading role in his office. Ben Nunn, his spokesperson who worked on the campaign of Owen Smith when he tried to depose Corbyn in 2016, set to be his director of communications. There's a few kind of personal concessions to Corbyn. So Helene Reardon-Bond, who is Corbyn's office manager and who replaced Carrie Murphy in his top team, um, is likely to come in in some role. But, but the kind of really important thing is that even though there are, are a handful of what we might regard as lefties. They're a million miles away from Unite and from Len McCloskey and Carrie Murphy's wing of the party. So he's just trying to get far, far away from the kind of institutional culture that Corbyn has bequeathed the Labour Party. Is there a risk, do you think, that in the rush to appoint people that no one's heard of, the risk is that no one has heard of them, and at a time when getting any sort of cut through is going to be pretty tough, to the extent that anyone is going to tune into what's happening in the Labour Party, they might tune in and think, well, I've not heard of any of them, and then immediately tune out again? <laughs> I, think that, I think that his calculation appears to be that it is better to have people who you haven't heard of and can grow to like than have anybody who's had anything to do with the catastrophe of recent years. I mean, there has been discussion that Ed Miliband could play a role of some kind. I mean, certainly one of the people that they were contemplating installing as shadow chancellor. I mean, as is often the case, as a, as a former leader, he's become far more popular than he was in office, sort of not dissimilar to Gordon Brown's experience. But his basic calculation appears to be that in order to reshape the Labour Party and his image. He needs to break definitively with the chaos um, of, of Corbyn. And that, that applies to both lefties and moderates. I don't think he wants much to do with them. Gabby, you touched on the, the question of Shadow Chancellor there. Obviously, who a new leader picks for that crucial role is really important, not just politically, uh, but also economically as well in the sort of direction they might be facing, not least when the economy and the question of, you know, where these billions of pounds worth bailouts are coming from and how we might ever pay them back. Uh, but also it'd be interesting to have a woman in that role as Shadow Chancellor. We've not had it before. We've never had a woman Chancellor either. And Rachel Reeves is one of those, as you were saying, the class of 2010 who arrived uh was quickly promoted by Ed Miliband, thought they were going to be in the government by 2015, and she's been sort of whiling away her time as chairman of a select committee in the meantime. It's almost a little bit like Joe Biden committing to picking a woman as his, as his running mate. It's a bit like Starmer, you know, he, he is in the end a uh, a white a white male, and uh, probably um, it, it looks good and is probably a political imperative um, for him to appoint a woman um, as a shadow chancellor. And as you say, um, it's kind of an in- interesting thing for for a Labour leader to be doing. Um, I think that the... Um, I mean, we don't really know what Starmanomics look like. I don't know if that phrase has been uttered before, but I'm coining <laughs> it now. 
taking credit for Starmanovics. I mean, his his director of policy is a uh, interesting. Well, his his uh, the woman who is going to be offered that role. Her name's Claire Ainsley. She works at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. She's done a lot of lot of work on poverty, and I, I mean, she sort of ha- had some links to Unite and. So has a kind of trade union background, done a lot of work on the working class. But I mean, it, it, it's all, in terms of what Starmer himself thinks, it's quite difficult to know. People say he's quite, he's quite a values-driven character. He, he knows, you know, he knows that he likes human rights. He, he knows that he believes that the law and the state can be used to correct injustices. But if you said to Starmer, you know, the world as we have it is A, what is your B? What does B look like? Um, I, I think people say that they're they're not entirely sure, and so I think um, we'll, we'll we'll learn we'll learn more from whoever he puts into his shadow treasury team. One of those things which doesn't really pass the test of has any politician ever said the opposite? Has anyone ever said, "Oh, I bloody hate human rights"? Oh, <laughs> let's have less of those. I suppose that's part of the problem, isn't it? it, it not least because of what's happened with coronavirus has overshadowed the tail end of this contest, but it hadn't exactly caught the public imagination um, up in, you know, before the uh, the virus sort of swept all news before it. And, and certainly at no point we really come to understand what it is that Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer or Prime Minister Starmer would actually end up doing. What are they all about? And, and in particular, you know, it feels like about a million years ago this, but the, uh, you know, those northern seats, the red wall in the north, you know, can Labour, if Labour ever going to win a general election, they need to win back all those seats. And it feels, you know, like the worst possible time right now to ask the question of, is he up to the job of doing that? But we, we never, we haven't really found out a huge amount about him. Now, it's possible it's because he's got a grand plan hidden in his bottom drawer, or it's it's possible there's no plan there at all. I mean, he's slightly hard done by because he's so articulate and, um, and, and, it represents an Islington constituency. I mean, he's certainly associated with being one of the uh, the Remainer types who stymied Corbyn and paved the way for Labour's catastrophic defeat. I, I suppose the question is how salient will Brexit and Starmer's track record as the guy who softened Corbyn's Lexit stance be when there's a general election in half a decade's time? But in terms of his plan, electorally, I, I honestly think that um, the first thing in his sights is trying to restore the Labour Party to a kind of basic degree of, of competence. And I think one thing which people close to Sama say is he was always staggered by the incompetence of the Labour leader's office and how it operated. So even when he knew he was losing on Brexit, and, and indeed when he knew he was winning, he knew that if Corbyn had agreed with something, it didn't it didn't mean anything until the words had left his lips and until it had been sort of emailed to the lobby or to journalists in a press release but there was just a, such a tendency for Corbyn to agree with and to assent to the proposals of the last person he'd been in a room with I mean he just couldn't stand the uh, you know what what he perceived to be the total kind of chaos and incompetence of the leader's operation and I think he um, you know particularly found Seamus Mill exasperating to deal with and I, I think kind of what he wants to do is re-professionalize the Labour Party and put top people into it which obviously requires removing a few of them as well. And that's what we're expected to see is a big clear out of, you mentioned Seamus Mill, but Carrie Murphy is also expected to go. Is there a risk that the first days and weeks of his leadership, particularly when he's going to struggle to punch through sort of nationally in terms of the news agenda, that it's just dominated by yet another internal Labour war? Well, it's a, it's, it's almost a silly question to ask whether there'll be some sort of factional war under Starmer, because it, it is the eternal condition of the Labour Party to be locked <laughs> locked in an existential 
factional war. And I, I think that, that, that no doubt, that no doubt that Starmer will be defined by his ability to, um, I, don't, I don't think he can, he can stop it, but can he win it? Can he, can he kind of unite a sufficient number of MPs? Um, and can he kind of um, command the confidence of the membership enough to basically keep the socialist campaign group and um, unite faction of the Labour Party quiet and do what he wants to do? But the the, the complexity and the labyrinthine nature of Labour means it's, it's bloody difficult to get rid of people unless they go voluntarily. So um, Keir Starmer wants a new general secretary, but he actually doesn't have the constitutional power to put his own person in place, um, the General Secretary being the person that runs the Labour Party machine. Um, it, it's only the party's NEC, its National Executive Committee, its ruling body that can do that. And so there's there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of this will come down to soft power and whether people happen to decide to step aside. But if the left don't want to go, they've done a, a brilliant job of installing themselves into various different corners of the party over the last half decade. Gabriel Pogman from the Sunday Times there. So we have to wait until Saturday morning. The strange time of 10.45am is when we will find out who the Labour leader is. No ticker tape in Jamboree, just a tweet from the Labour Party press office. Uh, and then we find out who the new leader is. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, in particular because we'll have another special episode later this week. Do keep in touch, redbox at thetimes.co.uk or find us on Twitter at timesredbox at Matt Chorley. My thanks to Danny Finkelstein, Janice Turner and Gabriel Pogrand. From me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.